Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9 is where we find ourselves this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 27 to 29 will be our sermon passage today. And one truth that I hope you take away from our study of uh, not only this passage in particular today... But this entire uh, study of Romans chapter 9 and then on into chapter 10 and chapter 11 is that the answer to many of our questions is found in the Old Testament. If we want to understand what God is doing right now, oftentimes uh, the way to learn what He is up to now is to see what He has done in the past. And part of what he has done in the past, of course, is what we find in the Old Testament. And what we see in Romans chapter 9 is that Paul is explaining the current situation. In his day, the the fact that many of the Jews are not believing in the Messiah, but that many Gentiles are, the way he explains that is by taking us back to the Old Testament. So... um, What Paul is doing, uh, in one sense in Romans 9, we could say is he's basically giving us a master class in Old Testament interpretation. How can we say that God keeps his promises when so many descendants of Abraham do not believe? Read Genesis, Paul says. How can God choose Jacob and not Esau, or Isaac and not Ishmael? Isn't that unjust? No. Read Exodus, Paul says. How can God call the Gentiles to faith in the Messiah? They're not even His people. Read Hosea, Paul says. Why are there only a few Jews who believe? Isn't that some kind of failure on God's part? No. Read Isaiah, Paul says. From the days of the early church until now, there have been people who insist that Christians don't need the Old Testament. That it's irrelevant, or that it's a burden, or that it uh, is outdated, or whatever. Marcion in the 2nd century rejected not only the whole Old Testament, but also most of the New Testament. And there are people today as well who say that Christians should distance themselves from the Old Testament. And even those who know better than to say we don't believe the Old Testament or we don't want to be connected to the Old Testament, oftentimes we are guilty of ignoring it, nonetheless. But if you pick almost any book of the New Testament, you will see very quickly, if you're looking, that what the authors of the New Testament say does not make a lot of sense without the Old Testament. The Gospel of Matthew begins by telling us that Jesus is the offspring of David and Abraham and therefore the heir and fulfillment of all the promises that God made to those men. If you open up the Gospel of Mark, what you'll see on the very first page is Mark saying that John the Baptist fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah about the return from exile and the uh, return of God to his people. The Gospel of Luke begins with angelic announcements that the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. 
The Gospel of John begins in the beginning, just like Genesis chapter 1, and tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it is that Word who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The book of Acts begins with the, full, the, old, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the gift of the Spirit to all of God's people. And throughout the book of Acts, sermon after sermon after sermon is full of Old Testament quotations. And then when you get to the letters, when you get to the book of Romans, the very thing, first thing Paul says is Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, that's just the first few books. So if we walk away from reading the New Testament, thinking we don't need to read or understand the Old Testament, then clearly we have not really understood the New Testament at all. So I want us us to look together at Romans chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. In this chapter in particular, Paul is putting great emphasis on the significance of the Old Testament for understanding what is going on in what we might call the days of the New Testament. And uh, in particular in these verses, what is going on with Israel? Why are so many Jews not believing in the Messiah? Let me read those few verses for us. Romans 9, beginning verse 27, says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, remember the whole context here in Romans chapter 9 is Paul addressing the issue of the unbelief of Israel. The the beginning of the chapter is Paul expressing his grief, his anguish, his sorrow over the fact that many of his kinsmen, right, many of his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jewish people, have not believed in the Messiah Jesus despite the testimony of the law and the prophets and the Psalms, despite the testimony of the entire Old Testament. Many of them have not believed. And throughout chapter 9, he has been explaining how God has worked in the past in order to help us understand how God is working in the present. And in particular, here in verse 27 to 29, again, he's dealing with uh, the, the state of the Jewish people. Why so many of the Jews have not believed. And the key word here in this passage, and if you underline in your Bible or, or take notes, you want to note this word. The key word here in, in uh, verse 27 is the word remnant. The word remnant. Now, a remnant, as you know, is sort of a a leftover, right? Once something has been consumed or destroyed and there's a little bit left, that's the remnant, right? The, The leftover. And what Paul is talking about in these verses is the fact that there is a remnant of Jews who have believed, but only a remnant, And that is part of God's plan in the present, and that is part of how God worked in the past, and so nobody should be surprised by that. Uh, People were uh, surprised in in the days of the New Testament that so many Gentiles were believing, but... 
Paul and others show us, if we had paid attention to the Old Testament, we shouldn't have been surprised by that. They were also surprised that so many Jews were not believing. But again, Paul says, if we read the Old Testament, if we pay attention to what the prophets say, we really shouldn't be surprised by that. Remember back in uh, verse 24, Paul had said that uh, God has called people not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he explained in verses 25 and 26 how God could call people from the Gentiles by going to the book of Hosea. And now he's going to explain why so, many, or so few Jews are believing by taking us to the prophet Isaiah. And then later in uh, the book of Romans, in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 5, he will talk again and at greater length about this remnant of God's people. Let me, I want you to hear this just so, so you know that I'm not just sort of picking out one word that may not be terribly significant and, and trying to make a lot of it. It's a very significant word, not only for Isaiah, but also for Paul. And I want you to see that in, in Romans chapter 11. So he says, he's still dealing with the same problem in Romans 11. And he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has he just cast aside Israel altogether? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself... 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So you see Paul is saying uh, in uh, chapter 9, Isaiah prophesied about this remnant that would remain. See, when God spoke to Elijah, and Elijah thought he was the only Jew who was being faithful to the Lord. God said, no, I've got a remnant. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And Paul says, it's true now as well that there is a remnant. Paul, the other apostles, the Jews who were saved on the day of Pentecost, others who are being saved as Paul preaches in the synagogues as he travels throughout the Roman world. God has a remnant. It's not the whole Jewish nation that's believing, but there is a remnant who is believing. Now, what does this quote in chapter 9, verse 27 from Isaiah, what does this have to do with Israel in the present? This is, after all, about Israel in the past. This quote comes from Isaiah chapter 10, and it references the promises to Abraham. Right? It says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, that's what God promised to Abraham that he would do, I'll make your offspring as numerous as the sand of the seashore, as numerous as the stars of the heavens. But Isaiah says, even though that's true, even though God is going to make Abraham's offspring so numerous you can't even count them, he says, only a remnant of them will be saved. So God's going to multiply the nation, lots and lots of people, but only a small portion of them are going to be delivered, are going to experience God's salvation. Why is that? Verse 28 says, For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, there's going to be a great act of judgment on God's part, and many of the people of Israel 
are going to be subject to that judgment. They're going to experience that judgment instead of God's salvation. Now remember we said before, whenever Paul quotes the Old Testament, he expects us to be familiar with the whole story and not just the verse or two that he's quoting from. So what's going on in Isaiah chapter 10? What is he talking about? Well, we know from Isaiah 1, where we read earlier, that in Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel was sinful and rebellious. What we read was God saying to the nation of Israel, I don't even want you to offer sacrifices anymore. I don't want you coming to the temple for all these sacrifices and feasts and whatnot. And the reason why God said that is not because those things weren't important. They were important. But what Israel was doing is they were sinning and rebelling and breaking the commandments and breaking the covenant. And then they were coming to the temple and offering sacrifices like nothing had happened. Like it was not a big deal. They weren't weren't coming with repentant hearts. They weren't coming asking for forgiveness of sin. They were just going through the religious motions, doing the things that Jews were expected to do, offering the sacrifices they were expected to sacrifice, but there was no reality to it. When they left the temple, they were just going back to all the other sinful things they were doing. They weren't caring for the weak, for the widows and the fatherless. They weren't seeking to do what is just and right. They didn't care about oppression in their own country. They weren't honoring the Lord. They weren't faithful to Him. And so God said, I, 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 don't, even, I don't want these things. I don't need these things. I'm getting tired of all these festivals I mean, I commanded them, but I commanded them to be done in a different way than the way you're doing them. I don't need you to do them just for their own sake. So turn to me, right? Seek me. Cleanse yourself. Receive fruit. That's what he was saying. So they were uh, walking in rebellion against God. And so what he says in in, uh, chapter 10 is that he is going to send the nation of Assyria, a wicked, violent nation. He's going to send the nation of Assyria to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And not many of them are going to survive. Not many of them are going to survive the judgment that God is going to bring on them through the nation of Assyria. A remnant will. But that's all. He's not going to destroy them utterly and completely, but most of them will be destroyed, and only a few of them, a small number of them, will be saved. So, uh, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9 is that the reason so few of the Jewish people have believed in Jesus the Messiah in the present, in Paul's present day, in the the early days of the church, is not that God has failed to keep His promises, but that Israel has sinned against God in the present, just like they did in the past, and that they have come under His judgment again in the present, just like they did in the past. What was happening in Isaiah's day, in other words, is the same thing that's happening in Paul's day. We don't always think about it like that, right? But think about some of the things that Jesus said to the Jewish leaders. Remember the, uh, the parable he told them about the tenants? How the, the landowner sent servant after servant after servant to collect the rent for the land and they stoned one and killed another, they treated them all shamefully, and then finally God, uh, the landowner said, I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son. 
And when the son came, they said, hey, this guy's the heir. If we get rid of him, maybe we'll be set up. And they knew when he told that parable, they knew, he would, the religious leaders knew that Jesus was telling it against them. It was about him. It was about the fact that they had uh, repeatedly rejected the prophets, killed the prophets, stoned the prophets. And now when the Son of God himself came, they didn't listen to him like they should have. They rejected him too. And so just like Isaiah was told in Isaiah chapter 6 to go and preach to the people, but to harden their hearts and dull their ears. So when Jesus was asked by his disciples, why do you tell parables to these people? Why don't, why don't you speak plainly to them? You remember what Jesus said? He quoted those words that God spoke to Isaiah. People's heart is hard. Their ears are dull. They're under the judgment of God because they've rebelled against him. Remember those, all those woes Jesus pronounced against the Pharisees and the scribes because they were hypocrites? Remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem that last week leading up to his crucifixion? And he wept over Jerusalem because she would not be gathered to him. She would not come to him. She would not turn to him. And because of that, he said, your house is left to you desolate. And right after that, the disciples said, Jesus, look at, look at this beautiful temple. He said, you see those beautiful buildings? You see those beautiful stones? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another. Why? Because God was coming once again in judgment against his people because they had rejected this time not only a prophet, but his own son. And Paul is saying, look, what is happening now with the Jewish people is the same thing that happened with our people in the days of Isaiah. And we could go to several other different periods of Israel's history. They have rebelled against the Lord. God has brought judgment upon them, but he always saves a remnant. He never casts his people aside completely. He's never done with them utterly and once and for all. Even when he sends them into exile, right? even when he says to, you, to them, you're not my people, he always comes back and says, okay, now you're my people again. And now I'm going to bring you back to the land again. And he has compassion upon his people. Remember that Paul's point in this whole chapter is that those who are saved are saved not by their works or by virtue of their family tree, but by the free mercy of God. And that's true of the Gentiles and that's true of the Jews. And then Paul quotes one more passage from Isaiah chapter 9, or excuse me, uh, Isaiah in uh, chapter 1 this time. In verse 29, he says, As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, what does that mean? You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, right? So, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, are from the book of Genesis. They were wicked, evil cities. And God determined, because of their wickedness, to destroy them utterly. Remember, um, 
Abraham's uh, nephew Lot was living in Sodom and God rescued him because of Abraham's prayer for him. And uh, the Bible says that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So those cities were utterly and completely destroyed. The only people who escaped, remember, were uh, Lot and his wife and his two daughters. But his wife didn't entirely escape, right? Because she looked back and God turned her into a pillar of salt. So from those two cities, you had three people that God had mercy on and delivered. The rest were utterly wiped out. And Isaiah says in the midst of his um, you know, pronouncement of God's judgment against Israel uh, in Isaiah 1 because of their sin, he says, if God had not been merciful to us, If God had not left us offspring, left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah. We would have been utterly and completely and totally wiped out. Remember we said last week, um, God could do that if he wanted to, because uh, John the Baptist says uh, to the Jews who are coming to him for, for baptism and asking questions and whatnot, he says, don't presume to say we are offspring of Abraham because God can raise up offspring of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. Remember, he told Moses one time, he said, he said I'm just going to wipe out the nation and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses said, no, don't, don't do that. He, he pleaded for God to have mercy upon Israel. But God could have wiped them out completely if he wanted to. But again, Isaiah says, God has left us a remnant. He's been merciful to us. The only thing that separates us, in other words, from Sodom and Gomorrah, is God's mercy. If the Jews of Isaiah's day had said, well, we're not as bad as Sodom. We're not as bad as Gomorrah. Isaiah would have said, I I beg to differ. We could justly suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the only reason we haven't is because God is merciful to us. What Paul is doing for us here, not only in this passage, but also in the whole chapter, is he is helping to give us a significant shift in perspective. Because most of the time, what we look at and what we see is what we think God seems to have failed to do. God, why haven't you saved this person? Why aren't you fixing this problem? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Some disaster happens and people say, well, where was God? Why didn't God do something about that? What Paul does in this chapter is says, what we ought to be thinking about is what God has done that he didn't have to do. Because he didn't have to do any of that stuff. We want to say, why haven't you saved more of the Jews? Paul says, have you thought about the fact that he has saved some of the Jews? Despite their consistent rebellion? Why are there vessels of wrath? Why doesn't God save everybody? Well, 
How about the fact that God doesn't have to save anybody? How about we give thanks and rejoice in the fact that God has saved some of us at all? Now, that's not to say that we, we don't care about those who are not saved. That's how Paul starts the chapter with grief and longing for the salvation of the Jews. He's going to come back to it in the beginning, beginning of chapter 10. It's not that we don't care, not that we're to be indifferent. But that we are to recognize that what God is doing for any of us, is mercy, is grace, is cause for praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Leaving a remnant of Israel, saving a remnant of Israel is mercy. Saving any of the Gentiles at all is mercy. And let's not forget that that emphasis on God's mercy is not something new in the New Testament. It is something testified to over and over and over again in the Old Testament. What is new in the New Testament is not anything about God's character, not anything about God's plan, not anything about God's purpose, What is new in the New Testament is that God has finally fulfilled those promises from the Old Testament. His Son has come, has lived a perfect life, has died as the ultimate sacrifice, the final Passover Lamb, the true Passover Lamb, has been raised from the dead, never to die again, is seated at God's right hand, will one day come again to judge the living and the dead, but in the meantime has sent His people into the world to tell everyone that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Him will receive the mercy and grace of God that has been proclaimed since the days of Moses and before. Our God and the mercy of our God And the grace of our God are the same yesterday and today and forever. For that we give thanks.